Well, uh, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to Trinity. My name is Brian Schaefer. I am one of the pastors over at Redeemer, and I see quite a few familiar faces out there. For those of you that don't know me, uh, Trinity has a very special spot in my heart. I had the opportunity to minister along Jonathan Kahulis, and many of you when you were at uh, Redeemer, and I was also part of the oversight team when we planted this church and uh, until you guys particularized in February of this year. It is so encouraging to me to see what the Lord is doing here. So again, thank you for the honor and the privilege to be invited here this morning and to bring you God's word. Today, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, as we continue through your summer series, Engaging with Jesus. In this morning's text, Jesus and his disciples They are traveling to Jerusalem, and they decide to make a surprise visit to the home of Martha and Mary. Now, being the good hosts that they are, they open their doors, and they prepare a meal for Jesus and his followers. This is a story of two sisters and how they engage with Jesus. It was a very memorable meal. However, it did not go the way that Martha had planned. And we're going to focus on three aspects of this story which affect the way we engage or the way we interact with Jesus. And these points are very often overlooked when we read through this passage, but they're just as applicable to us today as they were to Martha and Mary. And that is whether we've been a a believer for a long time or if we're just exploring Christianity. Okay, and these are the three points we're going to look at in this passage. The first is our deception. Hmm. There we go. Our deception, our distractions, and our depletion. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 and 42, and read along with me. If not, the words will be up on the screen here. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And this concludes the reading of God's word. There is a greater narrative at play here than just two sisters arguing. This passage speaks to the great deception of the human race and how Jesus deals with it. Now, when I use the word deception, I'm talking about the effects of sin throughout the world. More precisely, how sin has corrupted everything in this world and how easily we are deceived and how subtly we can be blinded from knowing what's right and what's wrong. Living in this corrupted state, sin can be very subtle. 
Other times it's easily recognizable, but a lot of times it is not. It affects the way we think, the way how we live, and how we treat others. The story here that we read this morning underscores the deceptiveness of sin. And with it, what we see here is the oppression, the disenfranchisement, and the marginalization of women and many others. It's not easy to see it in this text at all. But if you lived in the first century Israel, culturally, you would think that there's something really wrong in this story. There's something really out of place. Can you see what it is? Verse 39 tells us that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and she was listening to his teaching, right? We would take that as, oh, a disciple listening to Jesus. But sitting at the feet of Jesus was a technical term that means you are a disciple who studies the scriptures under the oversight of a teacher or a rabbi. In the ancient Near East in the first century, women were not allowed to be disciples. They weren't supposed to go to school. They weren't allowed to read. They weren't allowed to study. And they were not allowed to even touch the scriptures. They were excluded from worship. And they were taught that a woman's place is in the home. They were excluded from worship for the most part, restricted to running the household and that sort of thing. They were treated like second-class citizens and they were considered property of their father or their husband. So what Mary is doing was certainly not the norm for a woman in her time, while Martha was simply doing what she thought was expected of her. Can you see the deception here? How a whole society had bought into this lie. And Jesus comes along, and what does he say? He says, no, this is wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. He adamantly recognized women as fellow human beings whose value is equal to men. He actively encouraged women to be his disciples. In Matthew 19.4, Jesus quoted the book of Genesis saying that God created men and women in his image. Together, males and females were meant to mirror the fullness of God and to enjoy him and to worship him forever. James Hurley, in his book, Men and Women in the Biblical Perspective, he writes this. He says that the manner in which Jesus treated women was foundational to his ministry. He saw women as persons to whom and for whom he had come. He did not perceive people in terms of their sex, their age, their marital status, but merely in terms of their relationship or the lack thereof to God. You see, in God's kingdom, there is absolutely no place for division by race, by politics, by gender, by socioeconomic lines, or anything else. In Matthew 13, 47, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered in fish of every kind. Every kind. Male, female, young, old, rich, powerful, weak. But what did we do? The deceptiveness of sin led us uh, into a world that decided that diversity is not desirable. We make divisions based on ethnicity, by gender, by age, by marital status. And we think that whatever tribe we want to be in that particular day, we are somehow better than the rest. But that's not the way Jesus sees it at all. He treats us monolithically and he embraces our diversity. 
The Bible throughout uses this metaphor of building a house to describe God's kingdom, of his church, okay? And ask yourself this, what would a house be like if it was built completely out of one material? Let's just say, let's build it out of wood. The whole thing is made out of wood and nothing else. You might first think, oh yeah, that's good. That'd be really beautiful. But what would you end up with? You'd end up with a house with wooden pipes that leak. You would have wooden wiring that wouldn't work. You have windows you can't see through. You'd have a, a worthless fireplace, right? It might look cool, might be beautiful, but it really is not a house at all, okay? You wouldn't want to live there for too long unless you were a woodpecker, a termite, or maybe a beaver or something, right? Instead, when you build a house, what do you do? You use wood, you don't only just use wood, but you have a huge diversity of other things in it. Concrete, steel, drywall, glass, tile, stone, a zillion other things. And it's the same with the church, okay? God is building his church with a huge diversity of people of which no two are alike. Now, for those of you that have children, you'll know firsthand that children with the same parents raised under the same roof can be so different. I have two boys, Christopher and Casey. One of them loves the languages. He loves reading, loves writing, loves poetry. Uh, he was an English and a Spanish major in college. And my other son, he will keep you awake all night if you want to talk about uh, things like algorithms and numbers, okay? Two totally different kids. When we were younger, we used to do a fair amount of camping together, right? And the moment we would get to the campsite, Christopher would be out there raring to go. He wanted to set up the tent, start the campfire, get the fishing equipment going, the whole thing. And Casey, on the other hand, would be like, can we just chill for a minute, enjoy the wilderness, okay? Two siblings, same family, two totally different personalities, and every single family is like that. Martha and Mary are no exception. If you read in John chapter 11, you can see really how different these two women are. When their brother Lazarus dies, Mary, what does she do? She stays in the house and she weeps and she cries. But Martha, she rushes out of the house to meet Jesus and then she barks at him. If you would have been here, he would have lived. Mary is quiet. She has a passive, contemplative personality. Martha there, but Martha has this uh, take charge kind of personality. She's serious. She's a task-driven leader who knows how to get things done. Mary, on the other hand, can be a little bit aloof. She doesn't care about practical matters so much. She doesn't think so much about stepping up to the plate and helping serve when there's guests in the house. Martha, on the other hand, can be overbearing. She can be hurried, she can be self-righteous, she can be demanding. And if we look at our own personalities, we all have some of the Martha and Mary in us, don't we? Usually more of one or the other. How many of you feel like you may be a little bit more like Martha? You can show hands. Oh yeah, okay, you guys are honest. How about those that feel like they're a little more like Mary? Oh, there's a couple of you, okay. So 10% of you answered my question, okay? The other 90%, you must be somebody else, right? But 
sometimes we get this impression that Mary is the super spiritual one, okay, while Martha is not. Unfortunately, Martha gets a really bad rap here. She loves Jesus just as much as her sister. You see, Martha understood the importance of hospitality. The call to be hospitable to travelers and those in need is commanded in both the New and the Old Testaments. She knew that the failure to show hospitality to others was actually a serious offense in the ancient Near East. Her heart was in the right place, but Martha, in verse 40, it tells us that she was distracted by her much serving. Distracted by her much serving. Which brings me to my second point, and that is our distraction. To be distracted, it means to be drawn away from or pulled away from. Now, the Greek words that we have for much serving, it is a mouthful to translate, okay? So I won't go there. But in its basic literal sense, it means to prepare many dishes. The implication here is that Martha is distracted from listening to Jesus because she's prepping this multi-course meal for her guests. Now, today in the modern world, we have made that word distraction almost sacred, in our vocabulary. But of course, we don't call it that, do we? We use the word busy. We use the word busy. When somebody asks you, hey, how you been? Oh, I've been busy. Okay, what's new? Oh, I've been real busy. Nobody ever says, well, I can't find anything to do. Life is pretty, you know, chill. Everybody says they're, they're busy, 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 busy. In reality, when somebody asks you that question, what is it that you're thinking? I'm exhausted. I have a zillion things competing for my attention. Every single day, I'm constantly being pulled in every direction. Pull out the list. My work needs that. It needs that. It needs this. My, my wife needs this. My son needs this. My daughter needs this. The house needs this. It goes on and on and on. There are so many things we find ourselves doing on our busy list, we never seem to get anything done. The problem here, folks, is that a lot of this is our own doing. We get caught up in telling ourselves that all these things have to get done. Technology doesn't help matters at all. We all love our smartphones, right? Our iPads, our tablets, laptops, anything that operates faster and can do more things is king in our lives, right? We got to rush out and get it. Okay, in Tony Reinecke's book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, he says that studies show that the average person checks their uh, phone 81,500 times a year, or once every 4.3 minutes, which means many of you will be checking your phone eight or nine times while I'm speaking this morning, okay? Like Martha, we get it in our head that we have to do this, we have to do that, we're distracted. Remember, it wasn't Jesus that said, hey, you need to make me this meal. This is Martha's doing. I think somehow we feel that it's important to be constantly busy. Many times we like distractions. In fact, we use the distraction of doing things as a means to fill a void inside. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing it all. There's always a sense of personal gratification and accomplishment when we get things done. The problem is this. 
is that we constantly try to fill our tank by doing and just doing. But when we do that, it never seems to fill up our tank. It's like there's this big leak in it. We keep doing more and more and more only to realize the tank is almost always running on empty. But Jesus says there is a better way to fill that tank. And I'll get to that in a moment. But first, let's get back to Martha. She's not only distracted by what she's doing, but verse 41 tells us that she is anxious and troubled. Now, there's one thing that I just love about the Greek language, the, the biblical language in which we're reading, is that it carries a lot of images in its original uh, words. Anxious in Greek, they use the word Miriam now, okay? And it means to be torn up or be eaten up on the inside. So Martha, something's eaten at her in her heart right now. And it also says that she's troubled, the Greek word thoribazo. Now, thoribazo is a really kind of a neat word, and it's used to describe the uproar of a crowd, okay? In the positive sense, when we talk about thoribazo, it means like the energy and the roar of a crowd at a football game, right? You know what I'm talking about, <sighs> right? Um, however, in the negative sense, it means to bring about a frenzied disruption, a commotion with intense frenetic uh, energy. If you read through the book of Acts in chapter 20, uh, they use the word thoribazo, okay? And it refers to a commotion that occurred when a man by the name of Eutychus falls asleep during Paul's sermon. And what's happening is they're in the second story of a house, okay? Eutychus is um, sitting on this open uh, windowsill. He nods off asleep, and boop, he falls from the second story on the ground below. And everybody rushes down to see if Eutychus is okay. And there's this huge commotion, this thoribazo. Is he alive? Okay, so that's what's going on with this text. By the way, that Acts 20 passage I was just telling you about, I absolutely love that passage. Okay, I figure that if I'm on the platform teaching and somebody falls asleep, if they fall asleep on the Apostle Paul, hey, no problem, right? I don't feel so bad. Back to our story here, okay? Now imagine this scenario. I want you to, to think about this, okay? What's happening? Jesus is sitting there and he's surrounded by all these eager listeners. He's quoting the scriptures. He's telling parables. He's answering questions. He might even be uh, cracking a few jokes. All the while, Mary is focused in on Jesus and what he's teaching. She just gets to sit there and take it all in. But not Martha. Martha's way too busy. She's feeling this pressure inside to provide this huge gourmet meal for her guest of honor, and it's eaten her up. Martha is actually fuming. She's about ready to pop her cork. She has to be thinking, what is that lazy, irresponsible sister of mine doing out there? She thinks she can just sit out there when there's so much work in here that needs to be done for our guests. And I'm the one that's stuck doing this. I'm here all by myself. Now, you probably know the kind of frustration, resentment, and indignation that Martha is feeling. Finally, what does Martha do? She finally says, enough is enough. So what does she do? Instead of going to her sister and pulling her into the kitchen in a very dramatic fashion, she storms out there, interrupts Jesus, and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. 
when Martha says, Lord, do you not care? We know she's hurting inside. She's feeling unappreciated. She's feeling unloved and she's feeling forgotten. All the while, she's pouring out her heart for Jesus in the kitchen. More importantly, she's wondering whether or not Jesus really cares for her. Does he really love me? I'm here all by myself. Can you relate to that? Every single one of us has had feelings like that at one time or another, wondering, does God really love me? Immediately, Jesus senses her hurt. And he says to her in verse 41 and 42, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. He comes back to her in a compassionate response to her pain, letting her know that he loves her. When he says, Martha, Martha, he is not using her name the same way we do. In our speech, when we're trying to get somebody's attention, what do we do? Joe, hey, hey, Joe, right? Isn't that what we do? In ancient Semitic languages, using someone's name twice is called the double vocative. It is a deep expression of the heart meant to convey intimacy, care, and love to someone. Now, you will find the double vocative only eight times in the Bible. Only eight times. And you never see anybody using the double vocative without weeping and showing a tense emotion. When David, King David, was mourning and grieving over his dead son, Absalom, he doesn't say, Absalom, my son. He says, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son. In Matthew 23, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and he's weeping over the future destruction of Jerusalem. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. He's crying and he doesn't just say Jerusalem, but it's from the heart when he says, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. And of course, the most famous double vocative in all of history is when Jesus is on the cross. He doesn't say, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he talks to Martha, he's speaking out of his deep love for her and he has tremendous compassion. He's not reprimanding her. He isn't saying, Martha, Martha, what's wrong with you? He's saying, Martha, Martha, there is only one thing you really need. He's speaking to her with deep love. Now, even though Martha is in this full-blown meltdown mode and accusing Jesus of not caring, it would be really disingenuous to conclude that Jesus favored one of these sisters over the other. Jesus loved them both equally, even though they were quite a bit different from one another. They showed their love for Jesus in different ways. You see, God has given each one of us individual gifts to engage with him in our own unique and personal way. Each of us has varying temperaments and very distinct personalities. The Bible tells us that God is no respecter of persons. And what this means is that he shows no favoritism amongst his family. 
He loves each and every one of us equally. God is the only being in existence that loves completely and unconditionally. And this should be a great comfort to all of us. It's called agape love. We cannot earn his love. It's freely given to all who place their faith in him and want to be part of his forever family of faith. He doesn't keep a scorecard based on what we do and then love us accordingly, right? He doesn't give us points when we serve him and he doesn't take away points when we don't. He doesn't give us points when we serve or do anything uh, uh, for him and he doesn't take points away when we're frustrated or angry with him. God has one scorecard, only one, okay? And it's based on what Christ did on the cross for us. Jesus has an infinite number of points and they were all earned for your behalf. When the Father looks at you, he sees Christ. He doesn't see your imperfections. He doesn't see your weaknesses. He doesn't see your flaws. You're forgiven. When he looks at us, the only scorecard he sees belongs to Jesus, but it has our name written on it. That's what happens. You see, that love that God has for you and for me, it's immeasurable. It, it cannot be measured. It's the same. It is equal to the same love that he has for his son, Jesus Christ. The intensity, the magnitude, the depth, the breadth of God's love for us is the same as his love for his son, Jesus Christ. It's a love that cannot be altered. It cannot be taken away. It's a love that's with us forever. And it's because of that love that we are forgiven for our sins. And that's the gospel, folks. That is the gospel. And when that sinks in, into our heads and into our hearts, it is life-changing. It becomes the focal point of our existence. And that's why in 1 John 4, 19, it tells us that we love him because he loved us first. It is through God's love that our hearts are changed. It's the whole reason we worship and we serve God. It isn't out of some sort of religious duty. Our devotion is rooted always in our love for our creator. And I want to circle back now, okay? And then that's going to bring us to our third and final point. Where do we go when we're feeling depleted, when our tank is empty? In much of the teaching that I've heard on this particular passage, it's always emphasis about one woman, that's Mary, uh, busy worshiping Jesus with her personal quiet time, and one woman, Martha, who is busy serving Jesus in the kitchen. And that's all you kind of hear about, okay? But with all due respect, I don't think they have the story quite right. There's no doubt in my mind that both women are devoted to Jesus and that they love him immensely and that he loves them both immensely. What we have here are two women serving Jesus, not just one. In fact, the two women are passionately trying to serve Jesus. At the core of Martha's effort to serve Jesus is action. The core of Mary's effort is more relational. At the very core of Martha's effort to serve Jesus is activity and busyness and action. And the very core of Mary's effort to serve Jesus is this personal relationship. And if you look very carefully at the scriptures, this is very easy to overlook. If you look at verse 40, Mary has not been inactive. Martha says, Lord, don't you care that my sister had left me? 
In other words, Mary had been working with Martha in the kitchen. She had been helping uh, with all the preparations. It wasn't Martha just serving alone. Mary had left early. The reason she left early was because she knew there was a hole in her soul that only Jesus could fill. She knew that by sitting at his feet and hearing him speak the word was the whole reason Jesus was there, and that's why she was there. In Matthew 4, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so to make more sense of Martha's uh, outburst, when she makes this demand to Jesus, make Mary serve you, I'm going to paraphrase that, okay? And this is Jesus' response. It's paraphrased. It's Martha, Martha, Mary has been serving me and is serving me. You're getting all worked up trying to put together this big meal. It's depleting you. I don't want that. There is only one dish that needs to be served, and that is bread. It's bread that you can't bake in the oven because the bread I'm talking about is me. I am the bread of life. I am the only thing that's necessary for this meal. I am here, Martha, because I am the only thing the only person that can permanently fill that void in you. I'm not saying that serving me is wrong, Martha, but I did not come to be served. Instead, I came to give my life as a ransom. The one thing I want, Martha, is for you to be with me because I love you. You are my family. This is what Jesus wants from Mary, and this is what she wants from Martha. It's what he wants from you, what he wants from me, it's what he wants from all of us, for us to spend time with him. The natural way, or the way of the human heart, is to always try to serve Jesus like Martha. It may not be in the kitchen, right? It might be serving uh, Jesus by working or volunteering with an organization like Hope for San Diego, and their outreach to help marginalized and oppressed people in our community. It could be helping out here at the church, right? Uh, and all the various ministries that you have there. And understand, serving is good stuff, people. I would strongly recommend everybody in our family of faith be active in serving. Serving is vital to your spiritual growth. Spiritual uh, uh, edification, it'll give you a sense of uh, satisfaction and maturity. It's nourishment to our souls. Everyone who is calling themselves a Christ follower is called to serve. But there's a huge caveat here when we talk about serving. And that is, when we serve Jesus, it can come with stresses and with strains. After all, you are working with fallen, broken people. And if you try to sustain your life by serving and serving alone, you will implode just like Martha. You will starve to death on a diet of just serving. You will feel like a hamster on a hamster wheel going around and around and around and going nowhere. Serving is important, but it's not an end in itself. It is a subset of our devotion and our love to Christ. And the key here is to embrace Mary's wisdom. She understood the importance of knowing when to step out of the kitchen and to sit at the feet of Jesus. In a day and an age where we idolize busyness, resting in the gospel and soaking in his word may sometimes feel like you're squandering your time. But you really, 
really, really need to know how important it is to sit at the feet of Jesus and to be filled, okay, and let him feed your soul and then embrace it. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you spend time, repeated time in his presence, then when opportunities arise to serve Jesus, you will serve with power and you will bring forth fruit that you cannot bring forth if you're empty. When we sit before him and enjoy his presence through his word, we receive our daily bread. We gain his wisdom, his insights, and it renews our strength for daily living so we can worship and serve others. Jesus is the one that fills our soul and nothing else can come even close. And this, folks, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can approach you with life's burdens and you never turn us away. We are never told that you are too busy to be with us, regardless of whether or not we are frustrated, we are tired, or completely empty inside with nothing to give you. You are there, welcoming us with open arms, wanting to spend time with you. We thank you for the ministry of Martha and Mary in a world of constant busyness, distractions, and never-ending demands and overstimulation. We ask that you, Lord Jesus, would help us set aside our to-do list so we can sit at your feet. When we are empty inside and we are lowly in heart, when we are depleted with nothing in us, may we come to you, Lord, and you fill us as we find rest for our souls. And until we see you face to face in the glory of heaven, we want you to know that we love you with all our heart, with all our mind, all our souls, and all of our strength. Be with us now and forevermore. Amen.